It's Thursday, May 29th. Welcome to Market Floor. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Fund, Tim Hansen. Once again, just the two of us. It's an intimate gathering, <laughs> and I enjoy every minute of it. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk emerging markets. We're going to talk about the business of whiskey, um, courtesy of a story that was sent to us uh, by one of our listeners. Uh, let's start with the deal of the day, though, and that is Apple buying Beats for $3 billion, uh, $2.6 billion in cash, $400 million in stock. We knew this deal was in the works for a while. The final price tag was a little bit lower than originally reported a couple of weeks ago. What do you think of this deal, beyond the fact that Apple has gotten Beats for a slightly lower price? I think there there are a couple interesting threads to pull out of this. Um, you know, the first is that in a market where valuations have been just crazy for properties, you know, Apple, you know, three billion is a big number, but I think Beats is rumored to have between one and one point five billion in sales. Um, when they were last reporting numbers publicly, which is when they were majority owned by the a company HTC, I think they had like a ten percent operating margin. So you know, call that hundred to one hundred fifty million dollars in operating earnings, and the and the multiples don't look crazy if Apple can can do something with it. And also, people are kind of gawking at the price tag, but look at the size of Apple and its balance sheet. This, right. for, this for them is right. It's I mean, it's almost a meaningless <laughs> tucking acquisition this at is, the end of the day. This is Tim Cook going around the office, reaching in the sofas for loose change. Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, but so in in that regard, I think it's an it's an interesting. You know, not outrageous deal for Apple. On the flip side, people may not know this is not the first time that Beats will have been tied up to a mobile phone maker. They were um, majority owned by HTC, um, which only and this is kind of interesting, which finally sold the, their their last remaining stake, which was twenty five percent of the company, for about two hundred and sixty million dollars last September. I think it was. So that's seven months ago. Beats was worth one billion. Now it's worth. Three billion. That that is interesting. I, I I don't quite know what to make of that. HTC probably feels pretty silly. Uh, the people who invested in, in in Beats around that time, which was the Carlisle Group, have doubled their money. They feel pretty good. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the full financial picture of Beats looks like though, because I mean, when they were part of HTC, they got a, they were getting loans from HTC, and uh, it's not clear that they're a super efficient going concern. Um, and then, so, so, and their partnership with HTC, it didn't work out that well. Like, HTC tried to put Beats Audio into the phones, have better speakers, you could get headphones, but the pricing never really worked, and people weren't that amped up about it. So, it remains to be seen how Apple actually wants to position this technology. And then, I guess they also have a streaming music service, but Apple already has Apple Radio. So, right. I, I don't quite understand the synergies, which maybe brings us full circle to the main reason Apple's doing this, and it seems like Tim Cook might be doing this as kind of a vanity purchase to just kind of be cool and get his picture taken with Dre. <laughs> there are worse... We've seen worse capital allocation than sure. that. Sure. I mean, three, would I pay $3 billion for a picture with Dre? <laughs> Maybe. Um, I, I want to get to the streaming music industry in a second and that landscape, but first, it seems like something is being made of the fact that Beats will keep its own brand, and Apple has not typically done that with past acquisitions. That seems, I don't know, I, I, I see those reports, and I wonder if people are just trying to read too much into that. That seems 
like a smart move on Apple's part to maintain the Beats brand. Well, here's where I think there might be an issue, and it's not. It's not. You know, companies can juggle multiple brands. That's not. It happens everywhere. Um, what What could be interesting? I think we've talked in the past about Apple and the differences in Apple between from when it was run by Steve Jobs and now when it's run by Tim Cook. And obviously, under Steve Jobs, it was. A, a more seemingly innovative and passionate and sort of aggressive company, and under Tim Cook, people have made the case that it's it's stagnated a little bit. And and um, so he goes out, he buys Beats. We mentioned already that relative to the size of Apple, this is this is tiny. But in terms of in terms of, you know, you have to wonder if there's going to be resentment among you know because generally speaking, it's been it's all about Apple, and now it's oh it's all about Apple, but. You know, Dre and, and those guys, they get to be about beats. And, they, you know, and, and oh, here, this high-profile guy who runs a very tiny slice of our business is, you know. I think there's some, there's some risk there for, for morale or for corporate culture. Um, you know, and, and culture, I think, at tech, tech companies is one of the most important things to protect because it's, it's people. You know, you don't have a lot of – you have brand and you've got technology, but – even your technology is only as good as the people who are who are working on it, engineering it. Um, so they don't if they alienate talent, which I think you know. Anytime you bring in people who are more famous than they are productive, which I think is they, again beats not an unproductive company, but relative to the size of Apple, right. tiny. You know, you, you you get a mismatch in terms of mind share and actual profit share. You just reminded me a couple of years ago when the whole story about Foxconn came out and for the radio show I interviewed Charles Duhigg, New York Times reporter. He had a book out, but he had also covered that whole story. And one of the things he had said was, uh, he, when you mentioned the culture at Apple, he talked about that's that's what's going to affect change. It's it's not really the the media attention. It is going to be the people who work at Apple they're the ones who are negatively affected by the story, and uh, and they are the ones who are going to demand change within their own organization. Um, back to this deal, when you look at the landscape, if you're Pandora, if you're Spotify, you obviously knew this deal was coming. Are, does it concern you? Uh, I mean, Apple, you look at the music business, and, and as you said, this is this has not been a major part of their of Apple's revenue, and yet... It is a small part of their revenue that has gotten smaller over time. Mm-hmm. The sales in the iTunes Music Store have been declining. If you're Pandora, if you're Spotify, how are you feeling today? I think you're feeling. I think you're feeling um, probably the same as yesterday. Uh, you know, because it doesn't necessarily it doesn't this doesn't strike me as landscape changing. Um, because Apple, you know, they knew Apple was going to try to challenge them. No, no change there. I don't think what they've what they've gotten in Beats as a streaming service. I mean, to me, Beats is, is more valuable as, as the headphones property and, and the brand there um, because the streaming music service, they're not, they're not a first mover there. They don't have any incumbent advantages. And, uh, but I think Apple, it seems like Apple wants them more for that than they do for, to, for the hardware. But who, you know, who, who knows? I haven't seen, I haven't seen the rationale that well articulated here, and which, and for the size of the acquisition, maybe it doesn't really even need to be. Maybe it is just about being a little bit, a little bit cooler and bringing in a brand that appeals to younger people. Um, we'll we'll see. I th- but I think if you're Pandora or Spotify, you feel just about the same because, you know, Apple hasn't. They've done nothing to to really change the landscape on you. They've partnered up with somebody, and uh, maybe we'll make a tougher go of it now. But I think Pandora and Spotify have a bit of a 
have a bit of a lead there and probably need to spend their time working on their business models more so than on um, worrying about Apple. The Wall Street Journal has a story today about emerging markets. And as we've talked about before, 2013, terrible year for emerging markets. 2012, 2011. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I'll just quote directly uh, from the journal story, um, talking about, you know, despite uh, a couple of years of of bad losses, um, quote, uneven stock indexes and low bond yields in the United States, Europe, and Japan are pushing investor cash into markets from Brazil to South Africa. Some are turning their attention to places such as India and Indonesia, where business-friendly leaders are taking power. This is what you do all day, all week, is look at emerging markets. Uh, yeah, April. April was a good month for emerging markets. Finally. Jesus, it's been a while. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> sure. That's, that's fine. That's fine. Worse things have been said on this podcast. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, for, for a lot of people who, um, you know, maybe aren't looking specifically at individual countries, maybe they look at the MSCI index and – um, even though it's trailing the S and P five hundred year to date, it's only it's only a, a couple of percentage points down. But I'm curious if there are um, one, if this makes perfect sense to you, um, and two, uh, if in some cases the horse has already left the barn. You know, when I see things like. I, I wonder about investors saying, well, look, business-friendly leader just got elected. Well, now I'm going to lo- load up on that. Yeah, yeah. ETF. I mean, obviously, so India, India, I think, is the is the, the high-profile story there with the Modi election. And that market went wild, basically, on, on the election of a, new, of a new government that basically promises to root out bureaucracy and corruption. Now, good luck to them. Don't they all? It's going to be hard. <laughs> Well, you'd hope. You'd yeah. hope. There are very few campaigners right. but, but, who, who nobody... campaign on more bureaucracy, more corruption. Right. Um, maybe that works in New Jersey. I'm not sure. No. <laughs> um, the, 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 so the Modi election happened. India went, went wild. Um, but, and that is a, a temporary phenomenon. And people probably shouldn't get so excited in such a short period of time about that. Because, again, rooting out corruption and bureaucracy in India is going to be a decades-long chore. And it will probably never be done. Um, having said that, no, I don't think the train has left the station. And yes, it does make sense to me that emerging markets are, are getting capital because the valuations are just really compelling. I mean, when you underperform for three odd years and the domestic markets and European markets have a years like they had last year, that valuation discrepancy is now right. so great that it makes no it, it makes no sense to be buying a troubled bank in Austria or you know a tech stock in in California when you could look at a, an emerging market and get something with a superior growth profile and better economics at a cheaper price and that and that's what you have I'll give one example which is something um, um, we disclosed in in our fund recently and that is uh, an Indonesian company called Mitra Ada Prakasa sounds like <laughs> I'm sorry what sounds like a complicated name but everybody's going to know what they do basically they're they're a franchise uh, a franchise business. And they run in Indonesia. They run Starbucks. They run Zara. They run um, Cold Stone Creamery. 
They run um, a number of other retail con- Adidas. They run the Adidas stores, and so these are these are global, well-known brands. And if you're just to dig into the business a little bit more, if you're Starbucks and you're saying we want to expand in Indonesia, you're going to this company and saying, "Help us execute this." Well, what they do is so they get the franchise agreement, right? So they get the right to use Starbucks's signage, logo, everything in Indonesia. They operate, they physically operate the stores, okay, and they buy from Starbucks the packaging, the coffee, you know, and then they give them a royalty on sales. Right, and that that works. They do that with clothes. They do it with food and beverage, and they do it. They have some department stores brands like Debenhams, which is a, a UK brand. And this is a company whose sales they're getting between five and ten percent same store sales growth at the different concepts. Their overall sales are growing twenty five percent plus annually as a result of the comps plus store count expansion. And they earn somewhere between fifteen and twenty five percent returns on equity. You know, five to ten percent operating margins on that growth profile, and right now it's trading for about nine times EBITDA. Show me a company in the United States or in Europe with the same growth profile and that valuation. It's not there. And so it makes sense that people- Particularly in the retail space. Absolutely. And, and now the issue with Mitra Adapurkasa is that they sell to consumers in Indonesian rupiah, but when they buy their cups and coffee from Starbucks, Starbucks demands that they get paid in U.S. dollars. Makes sense. Starbucks doesn't want the currency risk. Um, the, the rupiah has weakened, as a lot of these currencies have, and this is why people are starting to cycle into the space. The currencies are weak right now, so you get more purchasing power with your dollar. So if we go in as U.S. investors to buy a stock that's selling for 5,000 rupiah, well, now it only costs us 50 cents instead of costing us 75 cents. So it's a benefit for people who have dollars. Who it doesn't benefit is people who need to buy dollars, such as Mitra Adapurkasa, and so their cost of goods sold has gone up dramatically not because anything has changed in the underlying business, but because the currency has gone against them. When that when those currencies roll back, as will naturally happen as money comes into the country, right? It's kind of a weird little, you know, it's a little game that the world economies play. Then all of a sudden their cost of goods are going to go down, and the profit margins are going to go back up, and the stock's going to go back up. It's, it's just obvious that should happen. Um, so we'll see. But that is happening in a lot of emerging markets. And so when you get valuations like that and when the problem is basically current when people are if people are weak because of currency, that problem will solve itself when people start buying the or dropping more more dollars into those countries. You can follow us on Twitter at MarketFoolery is our Twitter handle. Um a tweet from at drunken sportsman, which is a uh a, frankly a very fun Twitter account to follow. Uh some guys up in Boston who I think have the, a podcast of their own and, and talk sports. and uh, But uh, t- they tweeted out a story earlier this week, um, and the tweet was, the U.S. is on the brink of a whiskey crisis. That caught my attention, as you might imagine. Didn't that call us a rebellion about 200 years ago? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but linked to a story in, in uh, Smithsonian Magazine basically laying out uh, – I guess at its core, supply, basic supply and demand, that we are consuming more whiskey um, than distillers are able to produce, uh, particularly in one of the examples they used was uh, a, a bourbon distillery, Buffalo Trace, which typically ages its bourbon eight to ten years. And even, you know, this is one of those, I suppose in some ways it's a good problem to have that your sales are growing um, and sales of, of of bourbon and whiskey are growing in America somewhere around 5%, but the the premium brands, those sales are growing around 20%, um, which leads to the question, 
beyond just running out and loading up on whiskey, mm-hmm. which any any whiskey consumer should be doing right now, um, <laughs> how do how do we play this as investors? Um, is it? Is, I, I, is it I, think, to, I think don't 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 well, try and play it. This the reason, I shouldn't go out and load up on Diageo. Well, or? there's a reason. There's a mismatch here because whiskey and bourbon, as you noted, ha, has to age. It's an aged spirit, right? And so the problem is not that distillers can't make it now. It's that ten years ago, they didn't predict the demand that is materializing right now. And so this is just another example of human beings being notoriously bad at, at predictions. <laughs> um, you know, having said that, the liquor industry moves in fads, and um, you know, and, and you can look through. And vodka was very popular. You know, there were like forty vodka brands, and even though the goal of vodka is to be tasteless, which I never understood how you could have a brand affinity for something that doesn't taste like anything, <laughs> um, but they do. That's fine. But that vodka was hot. You know, when Sideways came out, and what was it? Merlot went down the tubes, and everybody wanted to drink Pinot Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir, yeah. Uh, I, I was funny. I was talking to people in California not too long ago. They were saying Merlot is just just starting to recover from right. the from the death blow dealt to it by Sideways. Um, I, yeah, and for for those listeners who the movie Sideways, which came out, I believe in in two thousand four, long time ago. Paul Giamatti, Academy Award nominated uh, film. Yeah, and there's that line. There's the line from the trailer where Paul Giamatti this is Merlot. He, he says, "I'm not, you know, all right, I'll go in there and I'll meet with those people, but I'm not drinking any effing Merlot." Yeah, and they, I mean, that led to like <laughs> vineyards ripping up their Merlot vines because no one wanted it anymore, and then they planted something else. So that anytime there's an aging process, you know, where demand and supply have to be predicted ahead of time, there are always going to be mismatches, and what's going to happen is that. Whiskey and bourbon distillers are inevitably going to overproduce and having, and then we may suffer through a shortage now, but there will probably be a glut of high-end whiskey in ten years, and then we can all capitalize on that <laughs> by going to Costco and buying up cases of Kirkland brand aged bourbon. When because you know all these high-end producers don't want to produce too many cases of their stuff, so if they end up with too much product, they sell it off in mass. You can often find. Bargains there, so you know it's cyclical, and you know as bourbon ebbs, something else will flow. Rum, perhaps. Um, you know, you never know. So tequila, there's probably a there's probably a tequila craze coming. It's been a while, but there are some good tequilas out there. The well, nice sipping the nice sipping tequilas, and it does point to like if you're looking at a Diageo or uh, you know Beam or or any any sort of publicly traded spirits business. Uh, I think you do want to see a diversified portfolio of. Well, that's why they do it. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, because you can um, you can run into problems with with uh, if you're if you're too focused on on one product. Um, we were talking, weren't we talking about this slightly, like maybe a year or two ago, when Beam was watering down or cutting its bourbon? They were uh, the the Maker's Mark right. folks were. Yeah, that was their and that was one answer. response to yeah. Is we can we can weaken it, add more water. That way we get rid of some of the evaporation issue. You know, so the, yeah, like this has been a problem a decade in the making. It will take a decade to solve, and by then people won't be drinking as much bourbon anymore. Uh, before we wrap up, uh, yesterday, as I mentioned, was National Hamburger Day. Was it? It was. I failed to celebrate. Uh, you know, darn it. There's there's always time. 
uh, and people weighed in uh, with their recommendations uh, from Bensie Abraham in Arizona. I had pasta like a sucker yesterday. Oh, you know, I'm going to give you a chance to make up for that in just a minute. <laughs> uh, Bensie writes, I have two options for a very good cheeseburger, Portillo's or Culver's. You can't go wrong with either one. From Zach Lubarski in Seattle, the best burgers in the world by far are at Shake Shack. Hmm. Um, they even have a D.C. branch, I believe. They do. I they looked, do. I looked that up. Have you been there? I've been to the one in New York okay. years ago. You like? Yeah. I mean, Danny Meyer doesn't put out a bad product. I think there are. I don't think it's the best in the world, but it's it's good. All right. Uh, and from uh, Garen Lowe in Los Angeles, if you can find me anything that even remotely compares to Ray's Hellburger on the West Coast, you would make my life, uh, making me feel even worse that I I still have never been to Ray's Hellburger. But it, what's your uh, what's your go to? Keeping in mind that you are handy at the grill. Mm-hmm. But if, so my, the, the, if you're looking for a good burger that any, I make or that I buy out, no, that out, you, that out you of buy the house. out anywhere in the world. If you're like, I need a really good burger, where am I going? That's a good. That's a good question. Um, there, I just like that you effortless, effortlessly uh, broke down the emerging market stuff, and you appear to be stumped <laughs> by. The question, where do you go for a really good hamburger? Uh, I'm going to say, and I'm going there this summer, and I'm, I haven't been back. I haven't been there in a few years, and I'm, I am extremely excited to be going back. And that is my uh, my mom is from South Dakota, which is uh, good beef country out there. Yeah. And there is a, um, a, a restaurant in Brookings, which I, I think has not changed in 70 or 80 years. I'm maybe getting the length of the history on it. It's called Nick's. Okay. And Nick's. Makes a hell of a good burger, and they they don't they don't serve it with a bunch of fancy accompaniments, accoutrement. I don't. It comes on I think on wax paper, and it's just it's just a really good burger, and, and it's got it's, you eat at the counter. It's got that old timey feel, and uh, so if you're up if you're up near Brookings, is Brookings where South Dakota State University is? Um. We're gonna have to internet that. Chris. We're gonna have to internet that. <laughs> All right, we'll go do that. Uh, thanks for being here, man. My pleasure. Thanks for having. Me. You can read more from Tim Hansen by signing up for Declarations, the free monthly newsletter produced by Tim and his colleagues at uh, Motley Fool Funds. Also, you can follow them on Twitter. Mm-hmm. The Twitter handle is just it's just Fool Funds, right? I believe so. Yeah. Um, and and by the way, that's I, I really enjoy following Fool Funds on Twitter. In part because you guys aren't tweeting all the time. It's very selective. It's just we try and, to pick our spots. And more and more, I appreciate that because some of the people I follow, ah, they're just tweeting too much. <laughs> we strive to be occasionally delightful. Okay. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.